1: Can you imagine a twenty-five-foot wall of water, and that mass—a building has got no chance. People have got no chance.
2: I mean, its, it's when you when you glance back at it, it's—it's it's actually mind-blowing, it's hard to imagine that people actually lived out here.
3: My name is Shane. I've lived all over, but I was raised in Wexford Town, in the southeast of Ireland, and I feel a strong sense of kinship with that place. I am, more than anything else, a Wexfordian. It has influenced who I am, how I think and how I interpret the world around me. Yola and the story of the Yoles, who they were and where they went, is sort of like a missing piece of that jigsaw puzzle. Yola began to weave its spell on me when I was around nine years old. It was the 80s and money was tight so our school tour that year involved a trip around the county, visiting historical sites. I think it must have been on that trip that I first heard about these strange people and this language that was spoken here in Wexford and nowhere else. Maybe the notion kind of cast a spell on me. It has on others too. Dermot Dhamurraha is a Wexford-born academic who has spent his life studying Yola.
4: After the Norman invasion of 1169... Some of the adventurers who accompanied the expedition of Strongbow, FitzStephen, and Maurice Fitzgerald, settled in lands assigned to them in the southeast corner of Wexford, in a district now known as the Baronies of Forth and Bargy. It may be assumed that some of these adventurers were infantrymen in the service of FitzStephen and Maurice de Prendergast, the two knights on whom Dermot MacMurrough conferred the baronies, and that there were Normans, Flemings, Welsh, and English among them. During the century following the invasion. Their numbers were augmented by other followers of the Norman Knights and it's a simple historical fact that their descendants still inhabit the same corner of Wexford, a triangle of land between Wexford Town, Banno Bay and Carnsore Point, where names such as Parle, Codd, Stafford, Devericks, Lambert, Roach, Rossiter and Brown still predominate.
1: Um, my name is Nicholas Furlong. I'm generally spoken of as Nicky Furlong um, and I'm a, a writer and historian. Well, Yola is a dialect uh, which was in use in the, the in the geographically separated from Wexford two baronies or districts called Fort and Bargy, in the very southeast corner of the southeast corner of Ireland, and it's a geographic entity because. The long low hills called the Mountain of Fort, stretching somewhat from Wexford Town to Kilmoor, uh, would, before the arrival of the railways, have made it a complete isolated place. Um, it's always been regarded in, in the old, old Gaelic uh, Confederation of Kingdoms period to be separate from the Irish uh, political situation in that uh, the Irish name is Fortuahamara, the land of the stranger people by the sea.
5: The people of Forth and Bargy remain a people apart. They have a distinct dress, a significant physical swarthiness and darkness of eye, and their dialect, clearly an alien tongue, made them the subject of ridicule and suspicion. Jacob
3: Poole was a Quaker farmer, who lived in Grow Town in Timon and Wexford. He died in 1827, aged 53. The story goes that one day he was riding into town to do some business and came across a group of very strangely dressed people, obviously praying and saying Mass in a muddy field, worshipping in an odd language. He was disgusted to see them kneeling on the ground in the mud and the next day visited the local priest and offered to pay for a proper church to be built for them. This began a relationship and fascination with the Yoles for Jacob Poole, who wrote the only glossary of their dialect.
5: Yola is beset by protagonists in the form of the local Gaelic, spoken by many of the local populace, and also by a decaying form of English, scarcely recognisable to that spoken in Britain, but an errant child of that mother tongue nonetheless. Words of Yola appear in both the Irish and English spoken in Wexford. And I fear words of Irish and English seem to appear in Yola
6: likewise.
3: Celestine Murphy is an historian who works for the Wexford Library Service. She is a direct descendant of Yoles from the town area of Wexford, and her grandmother still used a lot of Yola in her daily speech.
6: Uh,
7: for example, she would say, um, Karky down, to stoop down.
1: Karky um, down.
7: Karky down, yeah. Right. Um, And there were other ones too. um, The bow, of course. That's a Yola term. That's a Yola term for the Banshee. Yeah, Yeah.
3: right. Because I grew up hearing a lot about About the bow bow. as well. I just assumed, (laughs) I never tallied it with the Banshee. I assumed it was kind of a ghoul or something, you know, but I suppose that's what
1: the Banshee was. Mm -hmm. I I, I recall clearly myself, and in fact there would be words I would use myself, you know, in, in everyday speech that would be clearly understood here. Um, for for example, I would say I'm I'm going to sock it out this afternoon. S A W K. That means I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to you know take a rest. Another word, which is quite frequent, is take your steven. Did you ever hear that?
3: I did not ever take hear that. your
1: steven down here. Means take it easy, you know. But the another one, which is quite common even to this day, is if you go into a pub and ask for a chai of whiskey. A chai is a small portion, therefore a half one. Chai. When you got
3: a a little bit older and Mm -hmm. started becoming interested in sort of history and the history of the area, Mm -hmm. did that give you a a deeper appreciation of this? Or what was your sense of your own heritage?
7: Well, yes, it it did. I mean, my mother um, had... in herself, a great sense of, um, of living in that particular part of the county, of living in Pierce's town, which is, you know, very sort of Forth and Bargy-ish, mm. that, that kind of uh, area.
5: The people of Forth and Bargy, whilst living in the main in harsh circumstances, are prone to come together, particularly on feast days or at fairs to dance, sing, and generally cast off the vagaries of life. They have a wealth of songs in their own tongue, celebrating all manner of customs and games, but also a good deal of pious, spiritual, and holy melodies.
7: Good people all this Christmas time Consider well what our good god for us has done in sending his beloved son with mary holy we should pray to god with love this christmas day in bethlehem Said, Messiah born.
3: The Wexford Carol is a perfect example of folk transmission. Through being handed down from father to son over time, many hundreds of years, almost no Yola is left in the carol. Jacob Poole, however, had the foresight to record the lyrics of Yola folk songs, such as the one heard at the start of this programme, though sadly almost no one sings them anymore. Mumming is another example of Yola customs from the early medieval period.
8: Your attention pay kind friends and please listen for a while until I relate the heroic deeds of these boys from Aaron's Isle. Twelve patriots we represent who nobly fought to right a country's wrongs. We've an exiled saint and a soldier priest, gallant warriors and kings brave and strong. The first I am, the Captain Bold, who leads this rebel throng. I have a chosen band of heroes grand. To in County Wexford, we do belong. Who once provoked our state, left there on shore, ne'er sought more. Well, my name is Graham Carty. I'm from Little Greg in uh, Duncormac here in County Wexford, uh, about, about five miles over the road from here. Um, well, we saw
3: your, your, your group marching into the hall. And kind of lined up, and then you performed your your poem. Um, how did you choose those, or was that poem laid down to you, or where did that come from?
8: Uh, that, that that particular rhyme now would, would be the one would be the rhyme that um, would be most familiar to to sets in this area. Um, going back and uh, talking to uh, my uncle now, and my grandfather, talking to those in days gone by, we would have been talking about older rhymes. Um, like, there would have been more serious, or you might notice when I was calling out the names, I was saying, like, here next we have Saint Column Kill, once we've walked our state, left there and shorn there, saw more, whilst they will or it. And at that stage, each individual would step up and have their individual say on each thing. So I was really under- introducing individual items, and each person stepped in and give their piece. But that's, that has died away, and as we just have the one main rhyme at the moment. Okay. Since a very early age, like, a moment was very important. Like, a, it, w- it was actually a I suppose, I very much talked about thing like Sunday mornings, like, um, like it was a serious topic, like, and uh, uh, it was a certain grade you had to be at, and uh, probably bef- before my time, like, it was a lot more serious, but definitely it was a very important thing to, to have, in a, have in your lifetime in this area, anyway.
3: It all began for me with the island. I remember seeing it for the first time on that school tour, as evening rolled in and the rain came down. Start up, It was almost completely underwater, a piece of silt virtually submerged, roofs and gables protruding above the waves like ghost ships. The Yoles, the last of them, went there to live because the people who ran the port of Rosslare needed their skills as pilots to help the sailors direct the boats in. It was as inhospitable and barren a place as you could find. They lived there almost as hunter-gatherers, scraping a living from the sea and the salt marshes. Industry and commerce sent them there. And using nature as their weapon, industry and commerce killed them. Anthony Kuhn is an adopted Wexford man, with a keen knowledge of the coastline and the history of the harbour. He took me out to see the island, or what's left of it.
2: What you're seeing here essentially is the remains of three buildings further down the other side on an extremely low tide you can actually see the ruins of a wall and I'm told that that was a garden wall
3: somebody's house? yeah mm. and this was uh, you were saying this was an island there was about 700 families here
2: at one point? 50 houses mm. and yeah. 750 acres of ground
3: right
2: mm. that pole that's up there that yeah. i on the ruins that pole I would guess is about 30 feet that's a danger mark Um, I've actually experienced weather out here that there have been waves and swells that are higher than that pole so when somebody says to me that just got washed away in a storm in 1925 it's not a far fetched story what was the
3: thing that I mean we're looking at a village there that is now effectively underwater yeah I mean, what caused that to happen? I mean, it must have been more than just a storm.
2: An extremely bad storm. I'm told that it was a huge storm and it just annihilated the whole lot. Now, you know of recent, we've had some freak conditions. So it's very believable that there was a freak storm that just took it. I mean, believe you me, this is what you're experiencing here today. This is like a lake. This is calm. This is nothing compared to what I've actually experienced out here myself and what this boat has been through out here it's, this is nothing and when you see you you saw when we were out there, you know a few little waves and you could imagine like a two foot wall of water hitting the three of you up and above the, the boat here, it'll be quite sore can you imagine a 25 foot wall of water and that mass, a building has got no chance, people have got no chance I mean it's it's when you when you glance back at it, it's it's actually mind blowing. It's hard to imagine that people actually lived out here.
3: And we're talking about a community with, with, with kids as well, there would have been children there?
2: School and graveyard. School and graveyard. Yeah.
3: And do we have any idea how many kids there were or?
2: No, I'm told that there was approximately about seventy families. Because in those days, there would have been more than one family in one house. There's about 70 families out here. And I'd say in those days, there could have been four, five, six, possibly even more children per family. So there was quite a sizeable community.
1: A lot of the Yola words uh, describe now technical fishing words and technical farming words that you would not hear anywhere else. Outside Wexford, for example, a a pitchfork, a four-tagged fork, is known as a a fork, but here it's known as a sprung. Now, it may not necessarily be exclusive to the barony of fort, but they would not know anywhere else in Ireland what you're talking about.
3: A couple of things are occurring to me as I listen to you talk, Nicky. Um, One of them is that the language as i hear you you say those words it's 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 quite onomatopoeic yes isn't it it's quite you can almost hear the the the, the meanings it's an expressive a terribly expressive language oh yes yes must must have been very vibrant when when it was al- when it was alive, when yes. people were conversing yes. with one another, it yeah. very oh much, yes, yes, it speaks of the landscape. It speaks of it the does. the work that the people were doing. It speaks almost of the the life, which yes. must
1: have been harsh. Yes, but I I also think that the 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 accent that was used is even more telling and much more difficult. It must have been in those days because there is an accent down in the region of Bridgetown, uh, the more of Mulrankin, Murntown around there, which is quite uh, extraordinarily expressive in, in the use of vowels and so on like that, uh, which is, is fascinating. But then, of course, remember that, that, that Wexford Town is the headquarters and the top capital town of the Barony of Fort. And the Wexford accent itself... The inside, internal wexford is quite unique. There's nothing like it in Ireland. I'd hate to see it ever dying down because it's it's distinctive. Yeah, it's we and come on to tours.
3: We're in search of 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 Yola. We're trying to we're trying to find it yes. in a way. Um, now I know you have some opinions as to uh, where where it might be. Uh, we're heading over to 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 England. Looking oh yes. For any little pockets where there may be people who are speaking something that might be similar yes, to what Yola yes, yes. might have been? Where, oh. where would you look if you had to go to?
1: Find oh well, it? So, well, if something similar, it, it's it is said that quite a lot of the 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 mixture of uh, the Irish language in with the Yola dialect is Chaucerian English, which Chaucerian English will be different a lot from the. English we speak today it would have been I suppose a relation of Saxon German and in Cornwall is is fascinating um the early christian missionary uh, who came and more or less conquered the pre-christian center on the exact point of Carnsore where there was so much dis- marine disasters in order, as they say, to placate the demon. The legend down there is that this St. Valk uh, came across to Ireland floating or sailing on a rock. Now, that may sound improbable, but usually when you get um, um, a myth corroborated by another myth, you've got to pay attention. And I was in Cornwall 10 years ago, and i have forgotten the name of the little port village that I went down to. And I discovered to my astonishment that there was a St. Valk there too. And the legend about him in Cornwall was that he came across to County Wexford uh, floating on a rock. We have, we had never heard of it. But beyond the fact that it was from Cornwall that St. Valk used to come on his rock, not England, Cornwall. <laughs> We need to make that distinction very clear. (laughs) Very clear, yes.
3: I knew we had to go further afield. The Olds came to Ireland with the Normans, which meant that they had to come from somewhere, and they brought Yola and all their customs and traditions with them. I wondered if there was a place where Yola was still spoken in some form or other. Could it be revived? And if we could find it, would we find the sort of interplay between it... And the indigenous languages of its home, as we had found in Wexford. I travelled with my friend Richie O'Hara, a native Irish speaker with an interest in Yola. Okay, so next up, Weymouth. So Shane, what are we what are we looking for here in Dorset? In a way I suppose we're looking for the, 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 the holy grail of the of, of the YOLA story, which is Amid all of the um, marginalisation and poverty and betrayal that we've encountered so far, what we're looking for is somebody who is alive and who is speaking and communicating in a language or a dialect that is something like Yola on a regular basis. So we're really looking for somewhere where Yola survived because it was so effectively wiped out in, in Wexford? Where did the olds go? <laughs> Judith Shane, nice to meet you. William Barnes was in some ways the English equivalent of Jacob Poole. He was a poet, a teacher, a minister and a contemporary of Poole's. And he was hugely responsible for popularising and preserving the Dorset dialect. He wrote over eight hundred poems, many in that dialect, which are proudly celebrated today by local folk musicians. I've been looking at the the book there that has some of his poetry and yeah. everything in it. It's the Dorset dialect seems to be. It has, seems to have more English in it than Yola, uh, which yes. would have been the dialect in Wexford, where yeah. where we're from. Yeah. Um, that seems to it, what we've seen of it. It comes across as much more like a. A foreign language almost than the dialect here which which to reading it is is you can kind of understand
9: when Barnes was born in 1801 he was born in Sturmanston Newton which is in North Dorset it was far north as so you can go really in Dorset and at that time you would have been able to tell the difference between somebody who came from Sturmanston Newton and somebody who came from Dorchester where by their dialect so that's it. so that of course has changed completely now and when Barnes wrote his dialect poetry, he started off writing it with a lot of phonetic spelling, which he toned down gradually over the years when he realised it wasn't all that popular. Um, um, and it did make it more difficult, though it he, he didn't seem so to him. But I think that is a difficulty now. Well, the reason people don't read his poetry as much as they should do, because he wrote some very fine poems, is because they're put off. By the phonetic spelling as much as anything, and in fact, some of it, like phonetic uh, comic phonetic spelling that you ensure or somebody isn 't necessary it 's how you would say the word anyway in, in any form of English, but I think it was quite difficult to understand um, but wouldn 't but now it has vanished, so there 's no way of um, there's no way of telling, really, and because all you've got is what he wrote down, which is a poet's impression, and he may
10: have taken a lot of liberties. A Fippin' Ockford diggings. Yours work, my lads, of Gwynon. on. I never heard the lick. They say at Fippin' Ockford there's gold in every crick. And more than that, they a say there's lots of coal and iron. And twon't be long afore we to get a little cheaper virin'. A man, told I, for certain, true, he digged a little while and digged up lots and lots of gold. Lord, how he made I smile. I went straight, woms so glad, a bird. And all the time kept humming, the song of songs I'd a loved so well. I mean, the good times are coming. Tim Laycock
3: is one of the foremost musicians and proponents of Dorset folk music and history. He draws many parallels between the lives of the Yoles and the speakers of the Dorset dialect.
10: I would say it was a very, um, it was a very hard life. You know, they were basically living off the land. Most of them were effectively, at that time, subsistence farmers. Um, they had very little apart from what they made themselves, um, uh, and that that goes as as far as the um, the entertainment as well. Um, the accent at the time was, was very broad. I mean, they took a great pride in it, I think. I think the speech was quite slow, full of um, colour. If people do a kind of parody of West Country speech, it's all O-R and lots of Zs on the end of things and Rs and that kind of sound. But that R sound is a very important part of it. Right, we're on Bulbar Hill. Right.
3: Near Read it out there, Richie. Uh, we're on Bullbarrow Hill in Oakford, Fitzpain which uh, according to our sources (coughs) is pretty much the heart of very very rural Dorset, this is where the last of the Dorset dialect was really spoken and uh, um, what what has been really remarkable is we were given a a copy of a very very rare book uh, William Barnes' Um, it's not just a copy of William Barnes' version of Jacob Poole's glossary, but there's also introductions and observations here from uh, Hoare, who's a great Wexford historian, and there's a whole conglomeration of stuff in here, different information, which is really confirming a lot of the theories that we had sort of um, really been sort of formulating ourselves as we've been as we've been going around. Uh, you know, for example. Jacob Poole had commented on the fact that you really could recognise the physical differences uh, in, in the yoles, that these were people who actually looked considerably different. And he talks about the fact that they had you know, distinctive Roman noses, dark hair, um, very dark eyes, the way that they dressed, they had their own particular costume. Uh, this is what we're discovering. It's kind of like everything is is in a way falling into place. Well,
1: the only thing I would suggest now is that we'd hit the road to Cornwall. I know it's lovely here, but... We
3: might find something there. We might
1: find something there.
3: Cornish, though very different in sound to Yola, has experienced a huge resurgence in recent years, and there are some striking similarities between the Cornish and the Yoles, in terms of personality, custom and history. Jennifer Lowe and her colleague Paul Hodge run the Cornish Development Partnership. We know that the, the, the Cornish people are of Celtic origin. We know that there is a strong sense of separateness from maybe mainstream English culture. So who, who were the Cornish people? Where did they come from?
7: Well, they were the British that were there before the Saxon invasions. and so Celts. Ha- yeah, Celts, yeah. who were then pushed into... The Western regions, so you've got the separation into Welsh and Cornish and then migrations from Cornwall to, to Brittany gave you Breton so you've actually got Welsh, Cornish, Breton inextricably linked and they all come from the Celts before the, before the Anglo-Saxon conquest so did, originally. Did,
10: did the
3: Roman invasion have much impact on the Cornish people? Were the Romans here particularly?
7: No, not much. A little bit trading but other than that it's sort of from Ex- Exeter. Exeter's almost the, the well, furthest west isn't it?
11: Yeah, the, the, the first Roman Place name Sester is actually Exeter, um, mm. but they did the Romans did trade yeah. um, tin in the west of Cornwall, but it just wasn't worth occupying mm. in a great mm. long peninsula from Exeter all the way down, you know, peopled by um, you know nutters in hill forts <laughs> that would fight to the death. Better to trade with them.
7: Yeah. Mm. So some of the earliest Cornish we've got is actually um, manumissions of slaves where you find that the names of the in in a gospel book so you find that the names of the slaves are nearly all cornish and the names of the so the landowners are english so you've got the anglo-saxon and the celtic so that there. would
3: make sense in terms of our group coming over who are effectively a slave class being brought over to work for the normans so it that might, makes so there's a parallel it, there that
7: makes it but linguistically that class would have been celtic not english speaking for the most part
3: but the big
11: big you know. connection is the sort of um exchange of saints because the British mm-hmm. gave mm-hmm. you Patrick yes. or Cothraca yeah. and um for us in Cornwall one of our patron saints is Kiran or we call him Piran. Mm. Um so you've got that P P Q yeah, thing. Yeah. So we sort of no fair yeah. exchange
3: is no robbery. Why wouldn't it? Yeah. What, one patron saint for another. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel that Cornish is closer to Welsh, or what? What? What Celtic language would you feel it bears its closest similarity to?
7: Breton.
6: Breton. Breton.
7: Oh, yes. It's it's closest to Breton, slightly more distant from Welsh, um, and and that's and, and more distant again then from mm. uh, the Gaelic languages. But I think it's. I mean, that history bears that out because the most recent division was. Cornish and Breton, mm. and you divide it from Welsh just a bit before that, you know, by geography and uh, and everything else. But, but, but if, if you if you learn, I mean, I, I speak Welsh as well, and I mean, you can you can sort of go from one to the other quite easily. And a Cornish speaker can look at, or Breton speaker can listen to Cornish definitely. And other than the accent, which is very different, um, you know, you can you can work it out.
11: Can you count to ten in Irish for me? Yeah, uh, last time I could anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hean, do tree cahr kuig she, schacht acht
11: nei onen tree peswar, pimp huich, sech eighth
1: now dag yeah there are definite similarities there are right? definitely yeah.
7: the, the pq things if you look at kuig yeah. and pimp yeah. you've got you've got that in a nutshell mm. you know that the, that sort of the, the, yeah. CG and the are the things
3: like I mean, the, the Breton pipes are very similar to the Irish illan pipes. Do does Cornwall have its own set of traditional instruments or things we like
7: that? We do. The Cornish pipes were reconstructed from carvings, and actually, we reconstructed them. Um, they're very similar, but they have a double chanter oh. a sort of interesting style of pipes. Not terribly easy to tune, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So yeah, we do, mm-hmm. um, and of course, it's been cross fertilisation too.
3: The trip to Cornwall revealed one remarkable similarity after another. The Cornish pipes, a bellows-driven instrument that sounded like a close relative to the Illin pipes, had gone extinct, but Cornish musicologist Merv Davy had reconstructed them. He lived in a breathtakingly beautiful village the depths
6: of the Cornish countryside, what happened in Cornwall is, is that we all were a bit cantankerous down here. You see, you know, we all do you've, you, you've heard that. We all do things a bit differently. So when they had the kind of Reformation um, throughout the UK, we dug our heels in. Um, so all the um, diddly diddly carols that they used to sing, that were very jolly, were replaced by more austere and more serious carols and songs, and that, and, and we hung on to ours. Um, you're talking about. Um, a mixture of, of, of the Reformation and going on from that with a more Puritan attitude towards religion where you, you, had to, you weren't allowed to have idols and so on in the church and the church were painted in drab colours and that. And what we did, we hung on to our carols so that when it came to the 18, 1900, 1800s, 1823 to be exact, they were still around. And there was a chap called Davis Gilbert who collected all these old medieval carols. And, of course, they're all 6 eight dance jins. Um, so we actually have got these little tunes, and the, 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 which could well be um, have have been the old tunes that were played in medieval times. You you've just provided a massive link between
3: Cornwall and Yola. Well, there we are, because one of the lasting Yola folk relics yeah. are a series of incredibly dark, austere carols handed down from father to son from the medieval period which we call the Wexford carols and there we had it like a whisper from somewhere very close by there is a cycle of Cornish carols just like the cycle of Wexford carols some of the melodies are even the same John Kirby is an historian who specialises in the day-to-day lives of the Cornish people. I want to know more about the innate and quite famous Cornish stubbornness and how this might have affected their lives and fate,
10: just as it had affected the Yoles. You haven't got people travelling through Cornwall a lot in history. You, probably more in the past, uh, well somewhere like Penryn uh, in about the 1400s it was said there were more foreigners here than Cornish people. But certainly the way you just described these other people sounds very much like the Cornish. They can be stubborn and they hold on to their own things, you know, like their language and their culture, and they don't like it being changed. So if you had a group even more isolated, I could see that they would, you know, not want to change their traditions. Another thing that
3: we, we, we found that is quite similar is that the, our, our Yoles were originally a, a slave group, a surf group that were brought in to to do the, the, the hard labour really in kind of uh, taming the Wexford countryside as that when the Normans were, were given their lands by, by Dermot McMurrah. And I believe that the, the Cornish people around the time of the Norman invasion here would have been a similar slave type group. That
10: tends to leave its mark, doesn't it, a kind of indelibly on the psyche of a people? Well, I'm an Englishman and <laughs> I'm continually reminded of it down here. Really? That, that I've come from a different country, not a different county, a different country. Um, uh, so it goes back a long way. I mean, they do feel different, and uh, and they are different. I mean, I, I think you can still see, you know, shorter, darker people, uh, which goes right back to the Roman period when uh, the original Anglo... Not Anglo-Saxons, the original people here were driven
5: further and further west. They are a Stoic people, slow to anger, happy in their work, pleasing of countenance and peaceful in their communities. It pains me that they have become so marginalised and peripheral among the people of Wexford, and that poverty and deprivation have encroached upon them so. There is much that could be learned from them if time were taken for the endeavour. I fear that if they are not cherished now, their customs and manners may vanish altogether."
3: One of the things I've asked myself more than anything else over the last few weeks and months is what did we learn from this experience? We went in search of the Yoles and I have to ask myself, did we find them? Well, I think we did. And the thing that strikes me more than anything else and the thing that I'm really grateful for is that I now have a sense of the Yoles as a living, breathing, a living, breathing Real community who lived their lives and dealt with the adversities and obstacles that this particular environment and indeed the times that they lived in placed in their way, and they did so with remarkable good humour. We didn't find a living person who, who speaks their language, and in fact, we don't really know what it would have sounded like. But what we do have is, and I think that this is really valuable, is that we have the cultural artefacts, the songs, the, the experiences, the customs that they left behind. And for me, the olds lived through those more than through anything else.
1: Matwal boost high soon was he tight. At arderoon was war aiming anguish a height visin tar vizin tell the waner eh, ze, nor zich nor well now nor ne'er may to break up a bate's we had a poostie tommyin was loose and so was a barry or to tore mouth and so valley green the happen he heard and he cry was tommyin